Today's scripture is drawn from Luke chapter 23, verses 50 to 56. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Thank you. Welcome. It's good to see everyone. Uh, please pray with me. God, we thank you again for this uh, third Sunday now of Advent as we continue to wait for you. Um, come to us. Make yourself known to us. And in that encounter, help us with renewed joy and hope. Seek your face even more and live in such a way that brings you greater glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I know what So over the first two weeks of Advent, we heard about Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and Anna, who spoke to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Today, we'll consider Joseph of Arimathea, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, sermons during the Advent season usually focus on the birth of Jesus Christ and his coming again. And so it may feel a little jarring to hear about Jesus' death and burial this morning. My former preaching professor were to hear about this. He'd probably send me a text with a SMH emoji for not following the church liturgical calendar. When I first outlined the sermon series, I did plan on a more traditional passage for today. But during my preparations this week, I was struck by the similarities that Joseph of Arimathea, like Anna and Simeon, is said to be waiting for something. And though they all have a pretty small role in the Gospel of Luke, their lives of waiting provide, I think, an important testimony for us. Here's what Luke tells us. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. So first, he's from the town of Arimathea. Arimathea might look and sound like arithmetic, but it's not a town full of mathematicians, which sounds pretty terrible to me, but maybe it sounds great to some of you. The town is only mentioned in association with Joseph here, 
And though speculation leans toward identifying it as the hometown of Samuel the prophet, no one really knows where it is. But since Joseph is such a common name, of Arimathea helps us to distinguish him from the other Joes in the Bible. Second, he's a member of the council. This would be the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 of the top Jewish leaders, elders, priests, scribes, and it was presided over by the high priest. It was the equivalent of the Supreme Court in matters related to Jewish law. And it was this body, this Sanhedrin, who atrociously used false witnesses to accuse Jesus, and then after mocking him, spitting on him and beating him, condemned him and delivered him to Pilate for crucifixion. So Luke is careful to note that even though Joseph is a member of this council, he did not consent to their decision and action. It could be that Joseph wasn't there for the hastily called meeting against Jesus, or that he remained uh, silent in fear, or maybe he even voted against the majority, but to no avail. In any case, Luke wants to be clear that Joseph did not agree to the decision and actions that led Jesus to the cross. Third, Luke tells us that he's a good and righteous man. That is really high praise. Jesus once said that only God is good, and only about a dozen people or so are called righteous in the Bible, including Simeon from two weeks ago. So Joseph is quite exceptional. He's someone who has lived as fully as possible in accordance with God's law. I think he reminds us that in every age, it is possible to follow in obedience to God, regardless of the surrounding circumstances. Interestingly, you may also recall that in Matthew's gospel, another Joseph, the husband of Mary, is described as righteous. I think the parallel is suggestive. The first man to hold Jesus as an infant and the last man to hold Jesus in preparation for his burial are both named Joseph and are both described as righteous. Jesus, the very righteousness of God, is embraced in birth and in death by righteousness. And four, he was looking for the kingdom of God. Or if we want to be more consistent, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. In the Greek, it's actually the same word that was used for Simeon and Anna. As Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, Anna spoke to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, and Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. We can get a better sense of this of what this waiting means by comparing some of the other translations. Joseph was waiting for, looking forward to, waiting expectantly or in alert expectation for the kingdom of God. So the waiting is not a passive, sit around, do nothing, killing time sort of waiting, but it's an active, anticipatory, I can't wait until it arrives kind of waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, what Joseph is singularly remembered for is that he took the responsibility of bearing, Je uh, of bearing Jesus. 
Luke tells us that this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him on a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. These verses anticipate and answer the doubts about the resurrection that will soon arise by testifying that Jesus really died and that he was really buried. Otherwise, the resurrection doesn't make sense. I know that conspiracy theories are all the rage these days, but it wasn't much different back then. Rumors started right away because, let's face it, the resurrection is really hard to believe. And so people made up all kinds of stories. They said that Jesus didn't really die, but that he was just badly injured and taken down from the cross. Or that his disciples went to the wrong tomb, and that's why they couldn't find the body. Or that the disciples stole the body and pretended that Jesus had been resurrected. Or that maybe the disciples had some sort of mass hallucinations about the resurrection. It is not possible, of course, to prove the resurrection in an absolute sort of way that skeptics often demand. Such proof would make faith unnecessary and is therefore incompatible with faith. Faith necessarily rests on trustworthy testimony and that is what we are given with Joseph, a good and righteous man. He along with many other credible witnesses in the Bible make faith reasonable and compelling though it is never inevitable or indisputable. So Joseph of Arimathea is a minor but crucial witness in the story of Jesus. Like other minor characters in the gospels, he makes a brief appearance and then disappears. But unlike the others, like Simeon and Anna, who appear only once in the gospel of Luke, Joseph is so important that his story appears in all four gospels. And each gospel writer adds a few extra details to give us a fuller picture of who he is. According to Mark 15, we learn that he was not only a member of the council, but a respected member, and that he took courage in asking for the body of Jesus from Pilate. We also get the added detail that he bought a linen cloth to cover the naked body of Jesus as a gesture of dignifying the body in preparation for a proper burial. Then according to Matthew 27, we see that he was wealthy and that he even owns his own tomb nearby. This further assures us that there can be no mistake about which tomb Jesus was laid in. And we learned that not only was he waiting for the kingdom of God, but that he was even a disciple of Jesus Christ. And finally, according to John 19, we learned that he was a disciple, but a secret disciple for fear of the Jews, meaning the other Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin who had condemned Jesus to death. And so taken together, the composite picture that emerges, that emerges of Joseph looks something like this. He's from Arimathea, he's wealthy. He's a respected member of the council waiting for the kingdom of God. He's a disciple, but a secret one. And he bravely asked for the body of Jesus from Pilate. He took the body down from the cross 
he bought a linen cloth to cover that body and bury Jesus in his own unused tomb. Now, the question that I've been asking myself and which I want to raise with you is why did he do this at this time? Why did he sacrifice his reputation, break his secrecy, and invite potential mockery, beatings, and even possible imprisonment by associating with Jesus at his death? Why did he follow Jesus in secret and in fear while Jesus was alive, only to reveal himself now in this moment of death when no one else stood by just to give him a proper burial? I think it's because he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was waiting with expectation for the kingdom of God. Let me remind you that the kingdom of God is simply where God is king. It's where God's good and perfect will reigns so that all people live in shalom, in the fullness of life. It's a vision of abundance and joy, of peace and health, of justice and harmony with all of God's creation. This was the first message that Jesus preached. In Mark 1, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, that is, turn around and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. At some point, Joseph heard Jesus' message and he wondered if in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, for which he had been eagerly waiting, had indeed come. Maybe after he heard the message, he would sneak into a gathering somewhere incognito to witness Jesus heal. Maybe as you heard from Pastor Dohi today, he was sitting there in the back of the crowd when Jesus fed the 5,000. And as he ate his bread with the others in his group of 50 or 100, he wondered, is Jesus really the bread of life? Maybe he had conversations with Nicodemus after their Wednesday night Zoom meetings with the Sanhedrin and wondered, what does it mean to be, born, to be born again? Maybe he saw Jesus enter Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna and wondered, is he the son of David, the promised Messiah? Maybe he was there when Jesus debated and silenced the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes in the temple. At some point, he came to believe and became a disciple, though a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. Now it's understandable that he would keep his discipleship a secret. Nearly everyone else in the Sanhedrin viewed Jesus as a blasphemous threat to their faith. If they knew that he were a disciple of Jesus, he would be expelled from the council or worse. Today, for example, in many places in the world, missionaries have to keep a low profile. They are under the constant threat of persecution and regularly face danger to their lives. The other day when we were praying for our missionary partners, we didn't even say the name of one of our partners or where they're working just to be extra safe in protecting their identities. Many of us at some point keep our discipleship secret whether in school or at work, 
because we don't want to lose our popularity or our standing. We want to fit in. Secrecy is understandable. What's harder to understand is why Joseph broke his secrecy in this moment. It's important to remember that when Jesus died on the cross, Joseph, like everyone else, had no real understanding that Jesus would be resurrected. Even though Jesus had told them, had repeatedly told them that he would be raised on the third day, no one really believed or understood it. So it's not a matter of faith in the resurrection or eternal life for Joseph. Rather, as a good and righteous man, as one whose moral imagination had been baptized by a vision of the kingdom of God, having heard the last words of Jesus on the cross of forgiveness, perhaps he came to understand something of God's plan of redemption and salvation for the world in bringing about the kingdom of God through the death of Jesus. Could it be that he found the death of Jesus and all the events and actions that led to his death completely incompatible with the kingdom of God as he had imagined it, as he had understood it from the scriptures and as he had heard it preached from the lips of Jesus? He might accept that the Romans would choose political expediency over justice and put an innocent man to death. But he could not accept that the followers of a righteous God, the leaders of the faithful of Israel, would be actively involved in the unjust killing of Jesus. He cannot reconcile righteousness and the values of the kingdom of God with what his counsel has done, and he can no longer remain silent and on the sidelines and as a secret disciple. Because he was waiting for the kingdom of God, because he had a clear vision of what that ought to look like, he was moved finally to take action in the open. He reminds me of what's been happening with the racial and social justice movements in this country. The problems of race and injustice have always been around, but many people, many Christian people, were finally moved to action this year after seeing the video emerge of the killing of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police. I think for many people, the vision of America that they had imagined or had hoped for simply could not be reconciled with what was happening on that video. And as a result, many have been moved to ask new questions and move toward new actions, including many of you. I know that many of you have been asking hard questions and looking for ways to better engage with the broader call for justice in this country. Over the last several months, for example, I found myself having a number of conversations around the issue of incarceration. I've been learning about prison food, about how we are serving food that has been declared unfit for human consumption to further humiliate and to dehumanize inmates and worsening their current and future health. I've been in contact with Neighbor Corps, 
a reentry ministry that provides resources and guidance for those trying to get back into their communities and the numerous difficulties that they face, including ongoing addictions and homelessness. I've been engaged with those who campaigned to release some 3,000 prisoners earlier this month in New Jersey in an effort to reduce the spread of COVID. And while well-intentioned, I've learned from others that it has led to further complications because none of the many necessary social services were in place for those released early. And now many of them face a very difficult time with securing basic necessities. And just this week, I've been distraught at reading about the recent flurry of federal executions, as well as about the hunger strike in Bergen County led by the detainees against the practices of ICE. I know that what I'm learning and my involvement is barely the tip of the iceberg in regard to the issues surrounding incarceration and that everyone has a different opinion about what ought to be done. It's such a vast and complex problem. It's easy to become depressed or angry or to be paralyzed into inaction. And this is just one issue among thousands that deserve and need our consideration. As one of my kids like to say, the whole system's broke, yo. What can we do as individuals and as one small church? Where do we even begin to start? I have to confess that there are days when I look at what's going on in the world and I just feel overwhelmed and hopeless and just plain tired. But what Joseph teaches me is that it's not an either or or an all or nothing question. Maybe Joseph also thought that the Roman empire was so corrupt that it needed to be replaced entirely. Maybe he thought the Sanhedrin was immoral and beyond repair and reformation. And who knows, maybe he worked on those questions. But in the meantime, and in the meanwhile, at the same time, he did what he could for Jesus. The big, seemingly unfixable, immovable problems did not prevent him from acting on behalf of the one, of the one right before him. Many of you have probably heard some version of the parable of the starfish. The original version, as far as I can tell, was written by Lauren Isley in 1969. The parable goes like this. There was a young man walking down a deserted beach just before dawn. In the distance, he saw a frail old man. As he approached the old man, he saw him picking up stranded starfish and throwing them back into the sea. The young man gazed in wonder as the old man again and again threw the small starfish from the sand to the water. He asked, old man, why do you spend so much energy doing what seems to be a waste of time? The old man explained that the stranded starfish would die if left in the morning sun. But there must be thousands of beaches 
and millions of starfish, exclaimed the young man. How can you make any difference? The old man looked at the small starfish in his hand, and as he threw it to the safety of the sea, he said, it makes a difference to this one. Now I know that we should come up with a better plan to save starfish than to rely on one man tossing a few back into the sea. But it's not either or. While some are working on those bigger and better and comprehensive plans, you can still make a difference for the one. And you can start now. Yes, we need to change the laws in this country to make it more just for all. But at the same time, we can also care for one family affected by that injustice. In the last month, the youth group led us in participating in the Angel Tree Project to send a Christmas gift to the children with a parent in prison. I know that a toy for a child whose father is in prison isn't going to change the prison system or help pay the rent or make a huge difference in that child or that family's life. Some will argue that getting that child better internet access for remote learning will be a more useful use of that money. I don't disagree. And we could easily argue all day about how best to help and how to be more strategic and how to maximize the impact of our resources and all of that. And yes, we should have those ongoing conversations. But in the meanwhile, and at the same time, can I also encourage you to act on behalf of someone? Just because you can't make a big or bigger difference, it doesn't mean you can't make a small difference. It's not either or. And besides, whatever we do, no matter how noble our intentions, no matter how extravagant our giving, it will never be the complete answer. But you can still begin to make a difference. And you can start today. I've wondered if Joseph regretted not doing something sooner for Jesus. People often have regrets at funerals for not having done or for not having said all the things they wished they had done or said while their loved one was still alive. People save their fondest memories and their best words for eulogies that their loved ones never get to hear. Maybe Joseph wished he had invited Jesus to his home for a meal while he was still alive. Maybe he wished that he had bought Jesus a donkey or leased a boat to help him with his travels and ministry. But at least in this moment, despite his incomplete faith, despite his past as a secret disciple, Joseph stepped up. He did what he could with what he had in that moment because he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. It took courage. It took sacrifice. But he chose to live in the light of the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, you use what you have for the sake of others. In Joseph's case, he used his influence as a member 
of the Sanhedrin to get the body of Jesus from Pilate. And he uses wealth to give Jesus a proper tomb and burial that no one else could. The fact that he belonged to the Sanhedrin, the council that had condemned Jesus, is probably why Pilate released the body to him. Only he could get the body. Had Pilate suspected that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, it's unlikely that he would have given him the body. And so even his secret discipleship became useful in this moment, and he used it for Jesus. I hope you recognize the unique and enormous influence and wealth and privilege that you possess right now for this moment. Imagine what the kingdom of God looks like. Imagine a world where God is king and there is peace and the flourishing of all and all encompassing shalom is present. In such a world, in such a world, how would you live? What would you see that is not right? And what might you do to make the world align a little bit more with the kingdom of God? Start doing that and do it now. Let's pray together. Lord, in this Advent season, as we do every year, we are waiting for comfort with Simeon and we are waiting for redemption with Anna. But this year in particular, we find ourselves waiting for your kingdom like never before. We have come to know in a deeper way that what you want for us and what we have done to ourselves and to others is just so incredibly out of sync. Teach us and fill us and renew us with a vision of your kingdom, of peace, hope, love, and joy, a kingdom that has already come. And give us the courage to live accordingly as we await your coming again in glory. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. We will now have our time of tithes and 